The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So first, maybe I'll just mention uh, that we'll meet again next Sunday night, and then uh, Common Ground will be closed on Christmas and on New Year's, and then we'll begin again the second Wednesday of, or I'm sorry, the second uh, Sunday of, well, I guess I was thinking Wednesday, and I'm sorry, so let me just say that again. So I'll be here next Sunday, and then the following Sunday will be the middle of the year-end retreat, so we won't be uh, meeting must be like the 29th or something of December. No Sunday night group because of our year-end retreat. This is, I think, our 20th annual or maybe even the 21st annual year-end retreat that we'll be doing from the 27th to the 31st. We are open for New Year's Eve celebration on New Year's Eve night, and we'll have a performance by Ellis, a well-known singer-songwriter, uh, and we'll do some chanting that New Year's Eve night, I'll have a potluck, do some reflections, and bring in the New Year in silence. So if you want to join us for that, feel free to. And then the following Sunday night, the 5th of January, I'll be out of town. So Kyoko Karayama will be teaching that night, a wonderful teacher in our community. So just a little update on that. And we've begun looking at Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, a Practical Guide to Awakening. Some of you maybe about this book. I know Meredith is going to order some books from an independent bookseller here in town, and that sign-up is on the uh, underneath the bulletin board in the lobby, and uh, you can leave her a check by next Sunday, and then she'll bring the books on the 5th of January for people to pick up who ordered one, if you want to read along. That's one way you can get a book. So some of you have been here, you've heard that this book is based on a discourse, very famous discourse, where the Buddha is talking about the ways of establishing mindfulness. Mindfulness is this practice where we're literally using the mind, waking up, seeing the way things are, and changing how the mind is in the world through this process of awakening. And hopefully... You know, it's like the basic insight in spiritual life is this insight, not so much, you know, about the nature of the mind or the essential nature of the mind, but just on the most gross level, recognizing how much the mind is unaware or how often we operate on, like, autopilot. And even if it feels like we're really there, Sometimes what that really means is there's the thought in the mind that I'm really there, I'm really present. But there's a big difference between thinking I'm present and the actual experience of being present. Just like there's a difference between thinking that I'm a kind person and a moment of being kind, of really including how it is, including how the heart is, for example, or including the presence of another person. That's a different experience than the thought, I'm a nice person. In a way, in a funny way, mindfulness actually opens us or opens the mind to a different reality. 
And we could say one reality is the reality of distractedness. The mind is literally distracted or confused by its own projections, its own conceptualizing process. And the other reality doesn't mean there's not a conceptualizing process, but the mind is no longer confused by it. So this is really what we mean by mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of these maps that the Buddha lays out to help us understand our experience. This present moment awareness is what, in the most immediate, basic way, it's liberating the mind from distractedness. You know, we could even say that the first liberation is when we realize the present moment, we're realizing the mind liberated from disconnection or distractedness, being lost in thought. And that's a real liberation. I'm sure you've noticed that, like, it's more apparent when we're sleeping, you know, I'm caught in a dream, especially if it's a scary or an unpleasant dream, and then we wake up. I mean, there's, there's that real sense of having been liberated from that dream, the content, that reality. I mean, it was a reality a few moments ago. Sometimes when you're sleeping with somebody who's having a difficult dream, you know, you might even do that, like you can tell, especially if you know the person well, like that they're, you know, struggling in their dream, being chased by some beast or something. And you might even wake them up. And they might even say, thank you. I was about to be eaten alive. And now I'm freed. You freed me. You're my, you know, whatever. So, but this is happening a lot where we get lost in thoughts, lost in dramas. I'm never going to complete my to-do list. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't know if I should stay in the relationship or leave the relationship. Stay in the job or leave the job. Stay in this life or leave this life. I mean, it's true. And these dramas, they're so entangling. The Buddha used this image. It's its quite intense image of these, uh, I think they're in the fig family, these vines that grow in tropical climates. You know, they have delicious fruit or some fruits and then the birds poop and it grows up, or you know, the birds go to trees and poop and then these vines grow up under the trees and they start to encircle the trees and eventually after a long time, even really big trees, the vines completely encircle the trunk of the tree and then completely take over the you know, the branches, and and the tree eventually, the initial tree eventually dies and is completely taken over by the vine. You would never know that it was used to be another tree. And it's just like what happens with our mind when we get caught in something. The mind literally gets absorbed in that content, that storyline, and it has an integrity. Like when I'm worried about something, you know, there's a certain integrity because my mind, under the influence of that content, begins to experience its, my, like the body sensations and anything I think about. It all, in a sense, confirms the drama 
that I've constructed. Of course it's real. I'm tight. Why would I be tight if this scary thing weren't really real? But we don't realize that we're tight because we think it's real. We think it's real because we're tight. So it's very seductive, very deluding, this process. The mind literally gets encircled, lost. So one thing we can begin to notice just in terms of this interest in mindfulness is how many times in a single day there are real moments of liberation where the mind is lost, caught up, entangled, and then for whatever reason that is abandoned and the mind like realizes a moment ago it was lost, now I'm found, you know that old spiritual hymn. It's really true. And it's like we're so happy to be like to see that, oh, that's just a thought, that's just a worry. But it's like we don't want to leave it alone. It's interesting how that is. We like, want to go back to it. Was that really? And then all of a sudden we slip back into it. So, there are many levels of liberation. The first liberation, like, notice, starting to notice moments of having been caught up and not caught up is we start to develop an ardency, a, basically a respect or, or a devotion to the awakening process as a refuge. And it really, what it does is it uh, brings up, it's not just this commitment or this devotion, but it's also a kind of humility, like, am I caught up in anything right now? Because when we're caught in a dream, do we know we're in a dream? No, I mean, almost by definition, when we're lost in a dream, lost in a drama, we think we take it as truth, as the reality. So it's not like we consciously are choosing to be deluded or to be caught up or to be entangled or wandering, the mind wandering endlessly with this particular drama. No, it all seems so relevant and appropriate. <laughs> so, the only time that we begin to uh, like, uh, change this is when we start to notice those moments of having been caught and now not caught. And out of that, a kind of humility and confidence, or humility and force. It's really a wholeheartedness, like, okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes I don't want to fall back into that hole again, fall back into that drama again. You know, like if it was a nightmare, you might keep the light on and sit up and do something, read a book or something like that. Like, I'm not going to let myself fall back into that. Well, it's very much the same in the, in the meditative process. I'm not, I'm not just talking about the formal meditation, but just this commitment, this deepening commitment, wholeheartedness towards mindfulness. I don't want to be, you know, a zombie lost in thought as I go through life, my different dramas. And don't think of dramas only in terms of the really intense ones that get our attention, but like there could be the drama about, oh, I can't wait to go home tonight and watch this or do this or, you know, or just I'm so looking forward to my winter vacation or I'm so looking forward to seeing this person. But basically what we're doing is we're using that drama, that 
content to avoid being here and now. And so we uh, we're become the mind becomes dependent on whatever the content is. And when as even really pleasant content, like thinking about a vacation, the content may be pleasant, but the mind encapsulating itself is always ten, tense, always tight. We can't be, the mind can't be identified and caught up and attached to content without there being mental tension or mental suffering. So there's always a sense of freedom, even if what we're coming back to is an unpleasant body, which is you know, often the case. Like, this is why we use distraction in formal meditation practice, because it gets us through the hour or the 45 minutes or the 30 minutes that we've decided to sit. And it's like, I've got a choice here. I can either be with this body, which doesn't feel so good, or I could create a fantasy or get lost in a worry or some planning or whatever. And before I know it, the 45 minutes will be over. I'll feel good about myself for having sat. And I, I don't have to feel my body. And the thing is, the more we avoid feeling the body and just generally being present, the harder it is to come back. The more we're sustaining present moment awareness, the more actually it's like a home. It may not be perfect, but it feels like home. But if we're never home, then home doesn't feel like home. It feels like a mistake. Like, what can I think about so I don't have to be here? It's like, it would, for a lot of us, it would be a challenge. Like if, you know, if I said I have some magical powers, and if you go home and do anything that distracts you, you're gonna die. You know, you turn on the radio, gone. Look at the internet, gone. TV, gone, gone. <laughs> you know, idle chatter with someone you live with, gone. Talking to your kitty. So all you can do is just sit home and be present. No, it would not be easy. It's not easy just to be with yourself. There's a, a funny story from, um, uh, I'm forgetting the person who wrote Dharma Bums, um, Kerouac, back in the, was it late 50s or early 60s? But anyway, he was interested in Buddhism and did a lot of reading and some practice, and he, he really wanted to develop his practice, so he took a job um, on a fire tower, I think by the Cascades Mountains in Washington State or Oregon, I forget where, somewhere up in the Northwest. And uh, he had this idea, you know, I'll just, just merge with the one, be with you know, Buddha mind or some idea of some ecstatic state of consciousness. He writes in his journal, you know, I ended up with uh, something like, his line was something like, uh, hateful old me. That, that's what he found up there, you know, alone for weeks at a time, was just his neurotic mind, his aversive, judgmental, neurotic mind. So it makes a lot of sense that we, the mind, out of habit, chooses distraction. And so much of our economy, of course, is built on staying distracted. New things to buy, fixing our bodies, 
you know, just so many things that we can absorb into so that we don't really have to be awake. Awake meaning not confused by the mental activity, not identifying and getting lost in the mental activity, as opposed to no mental activity. There's mental activity, but the mind isn't confused by it. So the first thing we need is, what has to take birth in our minds, is this ardency. And in a way, it's that first insight, and as I mentioned, it really arises from actual experience. It's not enough to hear it in a talk or read it in a book, but we have to notice probably hundreds of times that experience of the mind being lost and then coming back to the moment, back to reality. Oh, it's just a thought. It's just a worry. It's just fantasy, just hoping, wanting. Oh, it's just this. You know, it's like... uh, who we are, what we are, this is it. So not the story of Mark, Nunberg, this. Sort of different, isn't it, than our story? You know, like, just in your mind, you've got the story we tell ourselves and tell other people about who we are, and then we have our actual experience here and now. This is who we are. This lived body-mind experience right now. This is who we are. We don't actually need any story, any conceptual, you know, biography. Because this is who we are. This is how it is. This is the experience of the mind and body. And you see, it's like a world of difference from the story we have about Mark Nunberg, who's 55 years old, identifies as a male, and on and on like that. So this ardency, and related to it, is this humility, and it's devotion to the awakening process, to the process of simplification, really, right? Because the conceptualizing process tends to be complicated and entangling, and presence, simple present moment awareness, Simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And then, with that energy of that ardent, devoted energy, then what we do is we start training the mind to track experience. You know, that's why we have training mechanisms like mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of hearing, mindfulness of walking, because we are training the attention to track experience. Don't go back to sleep. Don't go back to sleep. Don't get lost. That's just a thought. So we're tracking experience because it's the only way to comprehend. It's the only way to learn. It's not enough to have a moment of mindfulness, but we have to sustain it. That's when we really begin to see how things work. It's like... uh, if I you know, took a photograph of somebody and I held it up for 10 seconds and put it down, I said, okay, you have, you have 10 minutes and you have to write about who you just saw. You know, you could, a lot of us, we could be quite creative and we could literally make up stuff about the person we saw based on what they looked like, how they were dressed, 
what the background was, and all of the um, stuff from the past, like other experiences we've had with people who look like that, who dress like that, who have that sort of, are in that sort of setting. But we don't know the first thing about that person, really, except that 10-second flash of seeing two-dimensional picture of them. Now, imagine how much more you'd really know if you could observe the person, you know, for an hour. How they move their body, tone of their voice, where they are, you know, just like I had a video cam. Just so much more. Now, imagine if we could get inside their mind. (coughs) If somehow their mental chatter, we had earphones and we could hear it. And, And not only that, we had sort of some new technology where we could like sense what they're sensing in their body. We'd really get under their skin. We'd really get a sense of who they are. Well, we, we have that possibility, of course, with ourselves. You know, we can really get to know this lived experience in that way. It doesn't have to be superficial. And when we're tracking or comprehending the way it is, it's like the richness of the data that's flowing into the heart, into the mind. It's so rich, it really begins to transform one's view of the way it is. Because generally our view of the way it is is based on very superficial data. Because if we're lucky, we just flash on experience and then get lost in thought. And then we flash, there's maybe a moment of bare attention or simple presence but then they're immediately we're thinking about what just was seen or known, lost in thought, and then thinking about what we just thought, of course. So thoughts tend to lead to the next thought, right? That, you know, I'm sure you've done that, where you find yourself thinking about something very obscure, and you, how did I get here? And then you, you just trace back, okay, I, that made me, and then I thought, and you can go back, you can go like 10 minutes, 15 minutes back to like that initial thing, that started this long train of thought. Well, this really is our whole life. So much of our life is the mind, one thought leading to the next, with every once in a while a little interruption to that chain. So if we could turn it around where there there's a chain or a, a kind of a continuity of awareness that every once in a while gets interrupted by the mind getting lost in thought, caught up in some drama, then waking up and reestablishing that continuity of awareness. It would be very different what we'd be learning. And so we begin with this basic humility, knowing the danger, really, of getting lost in thought, feeling inspired, wholehearted about being mindful, getting some instruction and taking up a training, like, okay, I'll use the breath. You know, it doesn't, there's so many different ways to begin the training, but I'll use the breath. Not that the breath is important, but I'm going to train the mind. I'm going to develop that muscle in the mind that can have a continuity of present moment awareness. And of course, you may be aware of the in-breath, and then aware of the out-breath, and aware of the in-breath, and then the mind might get lost in thought, but you can, at some point, know that the mind is thinking, and then immediately you're back on track. You don't have to rush back to the breath to be back on track. 
just knowing that the mind was lost in thought is a moment of mindful presence. That is how it is now. So that's getting back on track. Because sometimes people, we, uh, we get tight because we've been lost in thought and we feel we have to rush back to the training ground, the anchor, like the breath, but we don't. Just be aware, oh, having been lost in thought, like thinking about my to-do list, is like this. This is a moment of mindfulness. This is the next moment in that continuity of mindful awareness that allows for this deeper comprehension of the way things are. And what that deeper comprehension is, is just basically understanding what's skillful and not skillful without being aware in this continuous way there's no way to know what's skillful and unskillful. I mean, except, like, I think it's bad to lie. But, you know, there are a lot of these sort of moral things that we can repeat, like parrots can repeat it. I mean, we can train all kinds of animals to sort of, like, gorillas can do sign language. I mean, who knows? But it's one thing to be able to say lying is bad. Cheating is bad. Hitting is bad. But it's another thing through just that continuity of awareness to really see what gets in, gets set in motion when we're being mean, when we're being violent. Like what is happening in my own mind, let alone what happens, like how people treat me when I act that way. So to really see what happens, like we all know that watching three hours of mindless television isn't good, you know, and that we'd be embarrassed telling people. But we do it when no one's looking because, you know, mostly what keeps us behaving certain ways is we're, we'd be embarrassed if other people knew. It's like, it's a, it'd be shocking to see how we'd live if nobody was watching ever. You know, who knows what we'd eat, how much we'd eat, what else we'd do. But if we're watching our own mind, then it doesn't matter whether anybody else knows because we know the effect of watching too much TV, eating too much food, doing this, not doing that. We see. And then it doesn't matter. But we just imagine that we don't know. We imagine there's no effect because we're not paying attention to see that there is an effect to what we're doing, what we're thinking, how the mind is. So when we start having that continuity of attention, we start seeing all the different habits of the mind. It's a little overwhelming. It makes people not want to do the practice. But by this time, generally people are infected enough with the mindfulness practice they can't not do it. Right? You can sort of miss some sits. People tend to keep coming back to it because they've had a taste of how liberating it is to be awake and how dangerous it is to not be awake or mindful. Because it is a little overwhelming to see all the ways the mind is, how it how it's relating, all the different ways the mind gets lost in craving and aversion and distractedness and denial, all the crazy views that the mind tends to gravitate toward. It is truly amazing. And in fact, you can, if you want a barometer to assess how your practice is doing, the more overwhelming and um, 
and disgusting even, <coughs> you find the different tendencies of mind, it's generally a good clue that the practice is progressing. Because it's not personal, all the ways our mind is conditioned. And a lot of it is not pretty at all. I mean, just think about all the ways our minds are prejudiced that has just gotten imprinted and all the ways that those prejudices get imprinted in the mind through our culture, upbringings. And it's really, you know, humiliating to see because we know we're not supposed to be that way, think those things. But there we see it in the mind. Normally we don't let ourselves see it. But when we're being honest and mindful, we see all that. We see all the ways we can be petty. Like I, I sometimes say, you know, just like uh, having pie with my wife. And, you know, it's like, I need the bigger piece. <laughs> I mean, it's so petty. All these different ways, you know, that wanting to, you know, putting somebody down so I feel better about myself. I mean, when we really can, when you honestly see that without judging yourself, but just see it. That's a good sign in your practice, where you're not covering up anything. And you know it's just what the mind is doing now. The mind's like this, thinking's like this, judging's like this, worrying is like this, thinking you're the best in the world is like this, thinking we're the worst in the world is like this. Because that's the only way we can learn, like, when my mind is... Um, putting somebody down in some way. It's like that activity to really see how unskillful that is. In a sense, wisdom has to taste the constricted quality of that mind state. But it can't taste it. It can't really know how much suffering there is in that mind state and try to get rid rid of it at the same time. It has to allow it to come and go on its own, so it can really see, like, there's a great line, I think, in Rumi about, you know, fear is the, something like, fear is the coldest room in the house. I'd like to see you with better accommodations. And it's like, that's that's that insight where we see the mind playing out one of its habits, and we see, that's not a very pleasant place for the mind to be, you know. It's that insight that, That's the intervention. It's not like I have to even get rid of that habit. I just have to see how constricting it is. But seeing how constricting it is, is not being afraid of it, or taking it personally and needing to get rid of it. That, we won't have the insight then. We really let, we need to let these conditioned habits of mind come and go as they will in the space of awareness mindful, continuous awareness. The mind that is recognizing the skillfulness and unskillfulness of what's coming and going. That's the only way to learn. It's like we hear our parents saying this when we were young, you know. Well, you know, do it your way, you'll learn, (laughs) right? Well, we do. You know, sometimes it's actually quite useful to let little kids, make as long as it's not going to permanently harm them or another it can be useful to let them, you know, fall and get hurt to some degree so they realize, oh, I guess she wasn't kidding when she said be careful, you know? 
and they internalize it. Now, it's not their parent, it's their own experience that has taught them, you know, when I do this, when the mind does this, it hurts. You know, intelligent animals, not even human animals, intelligent animals don't do things that really hurt very often. They just have to do it once or twice. Like, uh, I was talking to this uh, boyfriend of a, a good friend of ours, and he uh, shoes horses for a living and uh, has some horses on some land south of the cities. And he was saying, yeah, horses are really smart. You know, you just, you just put this simple wire around. You don't need a fence, you know. And they just get zapped once, maybe twice. And they just stay away from the wire. They just don't go anywhere near it. They know. That hurts. Stay away. Humans aren't so intelligent. But it's because, you know, we've created, we've created this very seductive thing called civilization and technology that is enchanting. And so we've lost our attentiveness, our present moment of attentiveness. So we can fall into terrible addictive patterns in a way that animals in the wild don't. Right? I mean, I'm not saying being an animal in the wild is, you know, a favorable existence to ours. I'm just saying that we're a lot more neurotic than most wild animals because we've, because of our intelligence, we have created uh, something that's spellbinding. You know, this civilization, these possibilities, these enchantments. We are a species that creates and then lives inside of enchantment. Okay, so even for us, a lot of the time, Buddhism is, can be the same thing. We're enchanted by the idea of being a meditator, being a Buddhist, or being free, being enlightened, or whatever, however we might describe it to ourselves. We're not so interested in the process, we're interested in, in the ideas of being free or being powerful in some way, or being holy, or better than, you know, all the different things that can captivate us in this practice. It's very seductive. It's really not that different than the people who are at the gym pumping iron, you know, and enchanted about the idea of, like, having a really buff body, or people who are doing other things, to they're enchanted by other things, whatever it might be, picking up somebody that, you know, I must be great if I can... You know, go to bed with somebody who's this attractive, or whatever. Whatever kind of enchants the mind. So we have this ardency that appreciates the waking up process. We have this means, which we call, you know, using mindfulness and wisdom. We're clearly comprehending. We're training the mind to track the mind-body experience in a continuous way. And that allows for this discerning process. Part of that discerning process is, like, as we're tracking experience, the mind is remembering what it needs to remember, like, what information would be useful. As I'm tracking my experience right now, what should I bring to mind? Like, what teaching of the Buddha should I bring to mind? What previous experience should I bring to mind? You know, as the horse wanders towards that white band, that We'll give him a shock, give the horse a shock. You know, quite naturally, the information, the previous experiences, the memory, that relates to seeing that white tape, it's going to come to mind for the horse. But for a very distracted human, it's not going to get to the surface 
because there's so many other things we think are important. So we, you know, we bury it. We don't let it come into consciousness. But when we're mindful, then this more natural process of the information that's relevant will come to mind. We're sitting here being mindful, and there's pain in the knee, and we're mindful, right, in a continuous way, then what's going to arise is all the times, the memory from all the times we had knee pain or other physical pain, and we resisted it, and how it didn't work. That comes to mind. That's really useful information to come to mind. And maybe what will come to mind are times we had a lot of physical pain, and we welcomed it. And we didn't add anything to it, and how much better that worked. Right? And you see how that process of that information, those memories or that history coming to mind, that's natural. There doesn't need to be somebody bringing it to mind. It just will happen when the mind isn't cluttered or lost in different ways. Another thing in this discerning process, so one thing in the discerning process is the mind is remembering what information is useful, what it needs to remember, what it needs to keep in mind. Like even like when we're doing mindfulness of breathing, like even the information that uh, uh, staying with the breath, just come back to the breath, be with the breath. That information is very useful because it always seems like, oh yeah, I'll come back to the breath, but yeah. No, no, we know what happens. As soon as we go away, we'll, it could be 10, 15, 20 minutes before we remember to come back to the breath. So the mind that has seen that happen so many times, it's like saying, no, 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 don't, no, no, don't go there now. No, no, stay here, stay here. It would be much more interesting if you just stay with this experience. Even though I know you think it's boring, but just, just stay with it. So that kind of encouraging voice that kind of information is very useful to come to mind. And part of the discerning process, like when we're tracking present moment experiences, like how the mind will bring that information to mind. This is the great thing about hearing Dharma talks, reading Dharma books. It's like all that information comes in. It's not just gone. It's available. And it will arise at the right time if the mind is undistracted. Wisdom, all wisdom really means is the right information is there, and if you get out of the way, it will arise in the places it's conditioned to arise. So if we really hear a teaching, and it makes sense, even on an intellectual level, that comprehension of the teaching, like hearing a talk, reading a book, that we're already starting to wire it so that when that experience is happening, it will be there, it will be connected to it, and it will arise there. You know, if you've read about deer ticks and Lyme's disease, heard about it, heard your friend, all about what happened to her having Lyme's disease, you know, and then you're out in tall grass in the spring or fall when, you know, the deer ticks are especially prevalent, you know, it might occur to you, if you're mindful, like, oh, there are these small creatures called deer ticks. Some of them have Lyme's disease, you know. Maybe I should check my body. You know, maybe I should take these precautions. So it's the same thing. That in that discerning process, that remembering, and it's a way of protecting the mind. It's like with that information, 
And with the mind's deepening sense of what's skillful and unskillful, now the mind starts to feel empowered. It's not helpless. It, it has some sense, not a perfect sense, of how to take care of itself. It's beginning to comprehend how it all works, how it is that happiness arises, buoyant states, joyful states, light states of mind, how those arise. How is it that heavy states, contracted states, confused states arise? Because it's starting to connect the dots. Because it's tracking in a continuous way, it sees, like, when contracted and tangled states arise, like, well, what were the supporting causes that led to that contracted state, that heavy state, that difficult state of mind? And when happy states arise, what were the conditions? What was the mind doing that led to the mind getting really light and buoyant and peaceful and loving. It's not accidental. But if we're not tracking in a systematic way, how are we going to know how things unfold? And then, you know, we understand what's skillful and unskillful. We understand how to protect the mind. We understand how to bring in the information that's useful in that moment. And this is how we maintain balance. This is how the mind gets really strong it's not strong because of some, you know, edifice, like a tight fortress. It's strong because as it's falling out of balance this way, that continuous tracking says, you're falling to the left, go right. And as it's falling out of balance this way, and there's tracking, wisdom says, you're falling to the right, go left. So the strength, the real, like when we imagine our stereotype of an awake human being, it's not that they've got some sort of superhuman power. Like they, even the Buddha uses these similes, like in the same way that you know a, a mountain of solid granite is unaffected by the wind. You know, so we we have these ideas and we like these images of strength in terms of weight and solidity and. But in practice, real power, real strength, isn't in terms of this hardness. It's really in terms of this, this interactive nimbleness, where the mind, the discerning process, the correcting, self-correcting process, it's very alive. It's not a... Mindfulness doesn't lead to this sort of passive state of peace. The beautiful balance is, a, is arising because of this very alive moment-to-moment process of discerning. The mind is discerning what's skillful and unskillful as things are happening, tracking. It's, a, it's discerning like uh, where safety really lies, where safety doesn't lie. And mindfulness begins to go in this direction of effortlessness because the nth degree of this discerning process, you know, we've got enough of that ardency to take up the instructions, to start tracking experience, to use different training grounds, to develop that strength of mind, to have continuous mindfulness. And then that allows for that discerning process. And the discerning process begins discerning at a gross level, but of course, then eventually, slowly, gradually, begins to discern at a more subtle level where the most subtle level of that discernment is the mind is beginning to recognize that whenever the mind 
constructs or projects a sense of self or separation, there's tension and there are problems. The sense of self creates a distortion. So the mind then can't see clearly, and how can the mind respond appropriately if it's not reading what's happening, not seeing clearly what's happening? So it starts to speak and think and act in ways that are out of alignment, so things don't work well. So the mind begins to abandon this habit of projecting or uh, creating, constructing a sense of separation or self because it doesn't work, it doesn't help. Not because the Buddha said there's no self, which he didn't really say anyway. He said basically that notice when there is a sense of self, there's dukkha, there's stress. And when the mind, the heart, isn't constructing, isn't establishing a sense of self, centeredness, permanent sense of self, sense of being apart from the world, there's lightness and freedom. And this is that more subtle discerning. It's basically the mind is discerning what views, like that subtle uh, ancient projection of, like it's me having this experience. We don't even notice that that's what we're doing right now because it's so automatic, so pervasive, the mind establishing a sense that there's me here at Common Ground. Me liking to talk, not liking to talk. It's always me owning this or me in this. Or There's always a sense of me. But it's just a habit. It's an activity the mind is doing habitually. But as this discernment process gets more settled, the mind begins to see that activity. Right? If it's an activity, it can be seen. And the mind sees the mind doing that. And it's seeing the correlation. Like when the mind does it, things are tight. When the mind doesn't do that, things aren't tight. And it's not like on and off. It's like the mind is really doing it, and the mind is kind of doing it, well, not so tight. The mind not doing it much at all, very light. Not doing it at all, well, it's profoundly light and free. So there's this whole gradation, you know. We know that like when we're really caught in some self-centered drama, I mean, it's pretty obvious to anybody, unless you're you know, really out of it, you can say you know, you could say to yourself, yeah, I'm really caught, I'm really suffering, I'm really attached, I'm really identified, and it hurts. I don't like it, and I don't know the way out, because it feels so, I feel so justified in being angry at this person and personally feeling violated by that person. But we know we're hurting, and we know even that the hurt is related to taking it all very personally, but that doesn't mean we can do anything about it. But that's useful, just to know, just to get that correlation. And then you might have a time when you're just walking down the street and for whatever reason the mind's not caught in any big dramas. And you'll just notice how buoyant and light and unafflicted the mind is. And you might make that correlation like, I'm not attached to any dramas right now. I don't, I'm not strongly attached with aversion, greed to anything. I'm not afraid of anything right now. I'm not feeling I need something to be happy in right now. And just experiencing the lightness of the mind not caught in self-centered dramas. So it's just about getting this in more subtle ways. Because we have to, the mind actually has, like in order to let go of that activity, the mind has to see it. And that's all the mind has to do. That is the intervention, is just discerning that very subtle 
activity, what in Buddhism we call view, the mind constructing the view of separation, or constructing the view of self, a self that stands apart from everything else. The mind has to see that over and over again, see what that sets in motion, and that leads to the releasing of it. And that's the whole path. And that's why mindfulness is really at the heart. And as the Buddha and Joseph Goldstein in this book are talking about mindfulness, they're talking about it in terms of this ardency, the wholeheartedness that allows us, that's that effort that allows us to go through the inertia of distractedness. And the distractedness is overcome by training the mind to track the body-mind experience in a continuous way. And we have all these skillful means, like mindfulness of breathing as one, but there are many that we can train. That's why we sit down every day, ideally, in a perfect world, you have an hour or 30 minutes every day where you can just sit, and you're not training your mind to know the breath. You're using the breath as a training ground to develop the continuity of present moment awareness. And that's why so many techniques work. You could use any, like a lot of us use what's called open attention, meaning we're knowing the in-breath, and we're knowing the sound, and we're knowing the pain in the knee, and we're knowing the mind's thinking, and we're knowing the pain in the knee, and we're knowing another breath coming in or out, we're knowing the breath, we're knowing the breath, we're knowing thinking, we're noticing the mind judging the fact that we were thinking, we're noticing the mind wondering if the time is almost up. So it's like moment-to-moment awareness that many different objects, not the same object. So there are many ways to train your mind to have a continuity of mindfulness. Open attention, of course, lends itself more to daily life practice because we can't just be living our life, taking care of our responsibilities and knowing each moment of the in-breath and each moment of the out-breath. But we can know that moment-to-moment, like popcorn style, knowing this, knowing that, now knowing this, now seeing this person, now feeling my judgment of this person, now feeling the shame for judging the person, now being aware of the body standing, being aware of the body standing, breathing in, breathing out, speaking, judging what I just said. You know, so it's like that we can do. But for most people, in terms of the formal training, it's useful to take up a training ground that's simple, like the breath or body sensations, for at least part of the time when you're training. But I want to save a little time for people to share from your own experience or to ask questions. So we have about five minutes. Anything come to mind about the talk tonight, about the subject? Examples from your own practice you'd like to share with the community? Yeah, Julan. Talk a little bit more with the whole idea of welcoming pain. You know, as I'm sitting, so I, I get caught up in that distraction. I'm so really anyway. <laughs> you know, and so it got better, but at the same time, it's like what a novel concept to welcome it. Can you talk more about that? Because I'm not sure that I'm probably that. Well, the, the great confidence comes from seeing that resisting pain is painful, right? And actually, surprisingly, number of times, like certainly the majority of times, the resistance to the pain is more painful than the pain itself. This is really shocks the mind when it sees it. And the way you'll know that's true is when, excuse me, when you are willing to be mindful or welcome the pain that you're, you've been avoiding, and all of a sudden it seems like 
the pain goes away. It's not that the pain necessarily went away. It's that what you were avoiding was the resistance to something. But, so, you see what I'm saying? So, it's like, I don't want to feel this, and that this is the not wanting to feel this. You see, it's like this terrible feedback loop. So, we're creating the suffering we're running from. Or, running from suffering is the suffering we're running from. You see how crazy it is? That is, there is very true, there is pain in life. Being a human being, being a sensitive being, we get cold, we get sick, we experience the pain of loss. I mean, there are these natural, emotional, physical pains that just come away. And for some people, more than other people. You know, some people have a smoother ride, some people a rougher ride. But surprisingly, and I really think it is surprisingly, the... Uh, the way that the mind, the thinking mind, tries to manage the very real pain in life ends up being much more substantial than the very real pain of loss, pain of cold, pain of hunger, pain of sickness, pain of death. It's the same thing all over again. Basically, it's just avoidance. Yeah. So to see that the avoidance doesn't work, we're willing to experiment with welcoming. We may not know that welcoming works, but we know that resistance doesn't work. So that that's, that brings a crack where that allows us to do some practice. And then the other point is, start with pain that's not overwhelming. Because we need to build some confidence that welcoming pain is skillful. And if we immediately turn, which we're, we're going to want to do, we're going to want to turn to the biggest pain, because that's what's getting our attention. The big scary thing, you know, that we really want to go away. But don't start there. Start with ordinary little pains and, and realize, oh yeah, this does work. Yeah. Tom, did you have a thought? Yeah, I, I was just saying, um, this time of the year I, I think about um, taxes, okay? So, and I look at my pile of um, receipts, you know, and I'm just thinking, why did I do this, you know? Uh, why did I take care of this at the end of January and February and March? And, and I've done this every year. And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking that, that it's, it's a lot similar to yeah. how I deal with, with trying to be mindful. Um, when I'm actually doing the taxes, I'm actually fine. It's like, it feels really good to get them done. I mean, that, but actually, I have the process of it. And I'm not like creating a bunch of stories and I'm I'm just looking at numbers and putting together actually kind of fun. Yeah. What's up? What's up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and to really break our hearts wide open, think about how many times we went to bed this last year um, having uh, worked hard that day avoiding doing what we know we need to do, right? And then as we go to bed, we're feeling the unavoidable pain of having not lived with integrity, like not really listened to the heart, like the deeper wisdom that, honey, you should have done that. So then we have to distract her. There we are, finally getting a little peace, you know, no duties and responsibilities, but the mind has to neurotically keep itself from feeling what it's feeling because we can't let it in. So 
it's really good as many times as you can to break that cycle by lying down, for example, in the middle of the day and just saying, okay, let me feel what I'm feeling. Because what we're going to notice is like how being in denial, avoiding things, is painful. And it be, it slowly begs the question, do I want to live a life with the pain of avoidance? Which is forever. You know? Why not do what really needs to be done? And that's what the Buddha, in Buddhism we call the bliss of blamelessness. So we go to bed at night, and as we open, you know, to the heart, to the mind, to the body, it's what we're, we're unafraid because we know we've listened. Doesn't mean our day was perfect. Doesn't mean everything is even done. It just means we've done the best we could do and we've listened. We haven't practiced denial or distraction. And so we've given ourselves fully to the day, responded as best we could to whatever we saw, whatever we felt with as much integrity. And so we have, what do they call it? The, the sleep of the just. the just. Yeah, the sleep yeah. of the just. Or in Buddhism, the bliss of blamelessness. It's a real thing. I mean, it's it's not like make-believe. It Just like we know the sleep of the guilty. <laughs> That's 8.30, so we should leave it here. Thanks, everyone. Let's just take a few seconds, maybe in time for one breath together. And just appreciating the community. How nice it is to not just connect with the people here in this room, everyone different, of course, different lives, different situations, but with the shared interest. And then also connecting with the great lineage of women, men, other living beings who have been interested in the practice. They had busy lives like we do, complicated lives, but they did the practice as best they could had some understanding, realization, and shared their understanding, and now we're the recipients of this great wisdom stream. And now it's our turn to do the best we can. Setting a motion that causes for peace in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.